As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The Intercooler podcast is sponsored by JBR Capital, one of the UK's leading car finance specialists. Now, we only partner with like-minded organisations who really understand what it means to be a car enthusiast. And JBR Capital is a perfect fit for us. It's run by people who really love cars. And importantly, vehicle finance is all JBR Capital does. That alone is what the company exists to do. So whether you're looking to fund a classic sports car, supercar or hypercar, see what JBR Capital can do for you. And it's not just about very high-end, expensive unobtainium. In fact, the minimum borrowing is £25,000 and the average £80,000. Head to JBR Capital on social media or jbrcapital.com online and tell them the intercooler sent you. Right, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi everybody, this is episode 99 of the TI Podcast. Um, I'm Dan Crosser with Andrew Frankel. Yeah, this is, the, this is the flake episode. The next one's the big one, isn't it? We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But in this episode, we're talking about reinventing the car. Technological dead ends, revolutions that had a load of promise but never actually happened all the innovations that didn't actually go anywhere um some good stuff involved in this list um some obscure things but also some that um i was surprised to see on yours andrew for instance you've got supercharging on your list yeah are we are we gonna are we like sort of diving straight in uh, only because i'm curious about supercharging so this is an interesting one because supercharging is actually quite widespread or at least it was yeah, um, but actually, I can see where you're going with it. Quite, it was, you say quite widespread. I mean, it's been around for absolutely eons. I mean, there was supercharging stuff, you know, not long after the end of the First World War. Someone will come on and say actually doing it before. I can't remember when it started, um, but certainly in the twenties, it was it was quite widespread because I mean, it was so simple. Um, you had a mechanically driven forced induction device um, that just pump more fuel and air into the engine you got a bigger bang and off you went um and so you could take existing engines and supercharge them. you didn't need to design all new bigger heavier more cumbersome engine and it's just one of those technologies that you know on paper just looked brilliant but it never quite i mean it just never became you know particularly widespread i mean you never got you know porsche or ferrari or you know any of the mainstream i mean you know bentley did it a bit in the you know in the 20s mercedes did a bit in the 20s and then obviously we know that um 
you know, companies like JLR have used supercharged engine as probably its most widespread um, adaptation, but it's never become mainstream. I mean, if you, you compare think it to turbocharging, if the, you compare it to turbocharging, which is just went completely across the board. Um, and, I, and I've often wondered why, because actually, compared to turbocharging, you get no lag, you don't lose your rev range, you don't get that terrible effect on the sound uh, of the car. They work from idle. You know, you think about it, they're just better. And yet, <laughs> uh, and yet, and, and the problem is just one of efficiency, is because if you're driving something mechanically, it takes an amount of power itself to be driven. Um, and that amount of power, um, you know, saps the efficiency of the device. Um, and if you do want huge power, it's very difficult with supercharging to get huge power without... Has anybody who ever driven a, a supercharged Jaguar or Land Rover will know? Um, there tends to come with, with it a fairly big bill every time you stop to fill it up. Um, they're just, you know, because you're spending all that time, and all that time you don't actually really need the supercharger... You're still driving it. Actually, Mercedes in the 20s, um, they were quite clever. They had a clutch engaged supercharger, so you could choose when you used it. Um, and they used it particularly at places like Le Mans because they knew that the additional stress of the, of, of, the, of the supercharger would blow their engine up after time. So it became something which the driver used when he absolutely needed it. And when you were being sort of chased along by the Bentleys and the bloke was going, oh, shit, you know, you need to get away from here, then they'd engage the supercharger. Um, <laughs> That's brilliant. At, and, and the Bentleys always knew when they were stressing the Mercedes because you could hear it because suddenly the noise of this engine from this lovely sort of straight six um, roar or growl or whatever it was doing, it would just start shrieking. Uh, maybe not and, so brilliant then. And so, they could tell, hear, they, so, so, so the Bentley team, they could hear right round the lap and they could hear Mercedes using this, this more and more and more. And their strategy was, their, their, their way to break the car was to um, force its drivers to use the supercharger and, you know, soon enough it broke and that was that. But anyway, um, so yeah, supercharger. I love superchargers. I just think they're great. Um, do you remember the, the, you know, the Mercedes Benz, you know, that five and a half litre supercharged um, V8 that they used in the AMGs? I mean, that was just a mega, mega motor. Um, but it was just so inefficient. Um, and I guess in modern times with emissions and everything else, um, you know, they're just, uh, they're just not viable anymore. They've also, supercharged engines worked brilliantly in the last of the line exiges and elises yeah. um, because you still have that very linear power delivery. You still have a Revy engine. You still have a soundtrack. Um, and actually in those cars, the supercharging was so subtle. It, it didn't dominate the driving experience the way a turbo does, you know, because you have all that talk. You have throttle response to think about, slightly lazier throttle response to think about. You don't have the peaky top end and you don't have the, the howling soundtrack and so on. But a supercharged engine, it just, it just works better in that kind of sports car, doesn't it? Um, so, yeah, it is a shame that they weren't used more widely. You know, I think about my car. If that had a supercharger on it, it would totally change the experience. It would be lovely. Uh, yeah, good one. Okay, well, this one's a bit more obscure. Go um, on. I want to talk about turbine cars. Oh, um, uh, okay, yes. I, I know much why. of... I spent much of last week researching turbine cars for a story on the intercooler, and it went up over, over the weekend, I think, or maybe on Friday it went live, didn't it? Um, so if you're a subscriber, it's on there now. You won't have to look hard to find it. And yeah, turbine cars. So there have been okay. a few in racing. 
There, there is a reason they didn't work, which is that they're a really stupid idea for a road car. <laughs> well, there is that. There is that. But they... Unlike supercharging. They, unlike supercharging. But they came very close in racing to winning the Indy 500 twice. Yes, yeah. Um, within, lap, within a handful of laps on two occasions in the 60s, which is extraordinary, really. I, I just... There's a reason for that, and it's to do with constant speed. I mean, if you think about it, you know, we're talking about effectively jet engines, aren't we? Yeah. And if you get, you know, if, and if you get in your Airbus or Boeing or whatever and you go up there, what jet engines are really, really, really good at is delivering efficient power at a constant speed. Yeah. Yeah? So you like fly being at a cruise. It's just being at a cruise. And that's what you do at Indy. You don't, yeah. you know, your speed barely varies around the lap. So that's great because, you know, you just put the thing up, up to 100% where it's at its absolute most efficient and then 500 miles later you, you win the race. Great. Fantastic. Brilliant. Everywhere else where you actually have to accelerate and slow down, hopeless. Yeah. Because they don't do yeah. that. So they, they stood a chance at Indy and perhaps should have won, but for reliability problems, very close to the end of the race in, on two occasions. They raced at Le Mans as well, the, the Helmet TX, the Rover BRM. Mm. Never with any particular success. Rover did um, okay. Rover came 10th in 65, I think. Yeah. Not bad. Not bad. Jackie, Jackie Stewart, good. Graham Hill, not a bad driver. You'd struggle to find a better yeah. driver lineup than that, wouldn't you? So they've never come close to actually winning the thing. No, um, never near. And, uh, I mean, there are issues, aren't there? So you don't really have the throttle response from a turbine that you want in a racing car. At the all. thing no. takes a while to get going. You don't have engine braking, which is yeah, a big sorry, just, just on your first point, not only does it take a while to get going, it takes a while to stop going. So you come to the end of the straight and you take your foot off the accelerator. It keeps going. Yeah. Not great in a racing car. <laughs> not great in a road car either. So there's, there's no engine braking, which means you're putting a lot of strain on the friction brakes. You don't yeah. have the same stability. You, it's probably just more frightening, isn't it? Trying to stop a car from... the far side of 200 miles an hour um, yeah. so it was it was never likely to work and there have you, been you a also, few you, you also probably need things like you know these things rarely sit in isolation so you know you, you have got no engine braking so that means as you say bigger strain on the friction brakes so probably mean much bigger brakes yeah so you've got much bigger brakes can you get bigger brakes behind the regulation wheels if you can how much unsprung mass are you adding to it and, and so you know, you sort of get into whatever the opposite of a circle of virtue is, um, a catch-22, I guess. Um, and these problems just multiply all the way down the line. At the end of it, you have an uncompetitive race car. Yeah, and you begin to wonder what the hell the point is. Yeah. Um, so there have been a handful of attempts to put turbines into road cars. Um, and it's worth saying, by the way, that, that, that you, you use a turbine in a road car by attaching an output shaft to the fan at the back of the engine that spins very, very quickly. You burn fuel and air, you launch that fuel and air mixture, that burning mixture at um, a first turbine, and that drives the, the intake and the, the compressor, and the air rushes on, blows another fan very, very quickly, and you have an output shaft attached to that which drives through a transmission. So... The, the closest anyone ever got to using turbines in road cars was in the 60s when Chrysler actually built 55 turbine cars. They, they called it the turbine car. And the, these things were actually running around on the road in the hands of everyday families. Um, for a two-year period, 203 families got to spend two months living with one of these cars. 
And they talk about feeling like rock stars in these things, the amount of attention that they got. They'd, they'd come back to the thing in a car park just to find the car surrounded by people just ogling it. Um, but they also talk about the terrible fuel consumption. As you say, at a cruise, if you're on the freeway at 70 miles an hour, it's probably comparable to a V8 of the day. But when you're driving stop-start through town, Can you've you got imagine? this turbine that idles at 22,000 RPM. Just <laughs> so it never air, stops to see that in the traffic lights. So you've got something to do 22,000 RPM behind you. <laughs> it's not <laughs> great. And, and the, they're amazed it didn't work. Did they actually ever sell one? Did, they, did, a, did a person ever no. walk into a dealership and go, here's some money, I'd like one of those, please? They were never actually produced. They were never actually offered for sale. So um, never retailed? No. And no. Yeah, I mean, that was as close as anyone ever got. They... They built 55 of them, and then they crushed 46. Um, because, well, either, I mean, there are different stories, either because they didn't want these cars getting out into public hands and people ripping the turbines out and putting a V8 in there because that totally undermines the project. The other theory is that the bodies came over from Gear in Italy, um, and they would have had to pay a huge amount of import duty on them if they hadn't crushed them. So nine survived. Most are in museums. Um, a couple are in private collections. Jay Leno has one. Um, and they're just very curious things. They, it's amazing that anyone ever thought, really, that these might be the future. And that's, yes. I think one of the big issues is that, apart from them being hideously expensive, is that the sort of benefits, the virtues they had over and above a, a typical piston engine, you, talk, you know, reliability um, and yeah, sort very of simplicity. Very moving parts. There's very, very few moving parts. Yeah. Um, those, you know, these things were sort of engineered out of engines anyway. They became smoother. They became more reliable. And the, the need for, if ever there was one, the need for a turbine car just was engineered away. Um, but it's, it's brilliant. I just love the idea that in the 60s, there were these turbines, these turbine cars driving through town. And actually, from the inside of the car, reportedly, they weren't that loud. But from outside... They really did sound like a jet was coming into land or was about to take off from the next road. Um, it must have been the strangest thing. Do you know what? There was a Jaguar came close to using turbines as well. A CX seventy five hypercar. Oh yeah, that yeah the helmet yeah, but they were they were using them in a different way. They were using them in a quite a clever way. They were used as range extenders. Yeah, and they run at constant speed, wouldn't they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, to recharge the batteries. Yeah. So you know, it, it sort of makes sense. That though. is a smart application of a turbine in a road car. Mm. Um, not, not, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. I mean, honestly, I mean, I'm not bright, and I'm certainly no engineer. But I reckon if you, if if I'd been around at the time and you said to me, I'd put a turbine in a road car. What do you reckon? I think even I would have been able to spot that this probably wasn't a technology that was going anywhere in that application. Yeah, it's just amazing that Chrysler even pursued it. It is astonishing. You know, yes. is, I almost think fair play to them. It, it was, it, it was so clearly a dead end, or at least it looks that way now, and yet they had a good sniff down it anyway, didn't they? Um, okay, well, so on a theme, right, let's, let's stick with this and talk about rotary engines, wankle, wankle rotaries. Yes. Um, Don't odd, ask me how one works. Mm, well, quite. And it's only really Mazda who persisted with them. In fact, play to them. They, I mean, they used them several times in road cars. Yeah. Yep. RX-7, RX-8. Um, very, very smooth running. Yes. High revving. Yes. Good power for the displacement. Good power. Um, yeah. But very little torque. If you drive an RX-8, 
you you look you see how much fuel it's using yeah and you think does this feel particularly quick and it really doesn't no, no. poor fuel consumption poor oil consumption um poor emissions um but lovely things um i, I did a couple of 24 hour races in rx8 back in the day rx8 back in the day and they were once you got them singing um they were so smooth remember they used to beep um even the rx7s i think used to beep because they were so smooth you wouldn't realize you're at the red line they just keep going um lovely lovely things but i mean even in the day because of the fuel consumption they were you know badly flawed and these days with you know, with emissions and and they couldn't keep the oil consumption over uh, under control over i mean it's one thing to build a brand new engine which you know just about hits it hits its marks but of course to homologate these things um and for these things to work you've got to show that they're still operating within those parameters after a hundred thousand miles um and that is um that, I mean, maybe this is a good time to talk about two-stroke because that was the problem with that. You, you're, you're too young to remember a company called, I don't even still exist, an Australian company called Orbital. And Orbital, I don't know, 20 years ago, um, had really promising two-stroke technology for cars. And if you looked at, you know, the power that you would get and the fuel, and, you know, it, it, it just seemed to be incredible. Um, but they just couldn't get on top of the emissions. Um, and you know there might have been a time when people didn't worry so much about emissions when it could have come to something um, but in this modern day and age there's just you know, it's just not possible to have um, you know in the case of you know two strokes oil burning um, engines um, and in the case of you know rotary things you know rotary engines which you know just use that much fuel um, and that much oil and you know and all the other problems that we know which come with them mm. Do you know, I'd love to try um, something like a Caterham 7 with a rotary and RX-8 engine. Oh, that would be good. A car which didn't need that much torque. Mm. Could be really exciting, couldn't it? Yeah. Because I think they're, quite, like, I mean, they're, they're very small, aren't they? I mean, mm. an RX-8 had a cubic capacity of, I think, 1.3 litres. Yeah. 228 yeah. horsepower without trying. Mm. Literally without trying. I mean, just really easy. Mm. Um, yeah. That'd be good. <laughs> I'm amazed. I don't know if someone has done that, but if you've done that, can I have a go, please? Um, you're, you're also, going out of patronise, you know, you're too young to remember rotary Mazdas at Le Mans, aren't you? Yeah, but I've heard them. Anybody who was at Le Mans in the late 80s or the early 90s, it's kind of like, you'll remember the noise of that Mazda probably more readily than whoever, whichever team it was won the race you at that year. I mean, it was it was absolutely extraordinary the noise it made. It was this howl, this shriek, which when you heard it, you didn't think that any kind of mechanical device could actually be making it. Mm. Um, and um, it actually, I mean, you know, you you didn't want to be caught by it uh, because it was so loud. It was, you know, that, that that horrible sense when the inside of your ears start to itch. Um, yeah. It would do that to you every time it came past. Um, so goodness knows what it was like sitting in the car but um, yeah hmm. wow okay I've got one more on the powertrain side and we've mentioned range extenders and I just yeah. want to talk about range extenders yeah um, oh. because they've sort of disappeared haven't they I mean it seemed like such a good solution a decade ago BMW i3 
um, you could have a, a little petrol engine in there that would just chug away. And it's not connected to the wheels in any way. It's, it's just there to, as a generator, it just recharges the battery, gives you more range. Um, and actually, the i3 is now out of production, isn't it? Or it will be very soon. Um, and the range extender has been out of production for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, and BMW says that um, it wasn't necessary because gains in electric-only range and a better charge network made it redundant. That's what BMW says. Um, but our friend, RS driver, he had one and he had to get rid of it, didn't he? Because it wasn't exempt from the London ultra-low emission zone charge, yeah. um, which seems a shame. You know, it's, it, to that, me, that what, engine what, doesn't what, have to be running in town. No, no. I mean, you know, it's not like a, you know, a hybrid where you have this massive internal combustion engine, which is like completely redundant when you're running on electricity. This was just, I think it was a scooter engine. It was like 600 cc's. Little two-cylinder scooter engine, um, the tiny little filter, and what it did was it just completely removed range anxiety. You didn't have to worry because you knew that if you ran out of electricity, so what? You know, go home on petrol, um, and you know you weren't, you know, it wasn't turning into an environmental criminal because you'd only use it in in, in an emergency. It was a tiny little engine anyway, um, and it just seemed to me to be an, a, a fantastically pragmatic solution to the problem which to an extent people still worry about to these days but certainly you know when the the i3 came out 10 years ago nine years ago whatever um was a real concern um you know an i3 back then even now i3s didn't you know didn't have much range i mean you know they they weren't these cars which would do 250 miles they would do you know half that um and so the idea of having a, a rex as they called them attached to them was just brilliant but I guess it's cost, isn't it? Um, and I, I, I also think that particularly the early adopters who go into that, they tend to go into, you know, some new technology, you know, absolutely head, shoulders, knees and toes. Um, and to them, I guess the range extender was a compromise. Um, it, it, it compromised the purity of the design, I suppose. And, you know, I'm sure they canned it for purely commercial reasons that there just wasn't sufficient take up. But then again, you know, the i3 was, you know, primarily a commuter car, an urban car, it never had the range to do distances. And so perhaps people didn't need the Rex as much as um, was initially envisaged. But, you know, I would absolutely defend it. You know, if I, and we did, we actually looked very hard at getting an i3 when we ended up with the Golf that we got now. And the only reason to get it was we couldn't get a couple of Labradors in the boot. But, I wouldn't then have thought about getting one which didn't have a range extender on it. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I think it's a great idea. I'm sad it didn't make it. They might also say that, you know, eight, nine, ten years ago, range anxiety was a bigger factor than it is now and that second, third generation EV buyers are actually more relaxed about that sort of thing and they they realise that they don't run out of electricity or the yeah. network is better or they're just prepared to, prepared to plan a bit, a bit more. Um, but it, it did seem like an elegant solution, it and was. you know, maybe more of us would be knocking about in them in electric cars if there were more range extender options out there. I don't know. Um, let's move on a little bit. Go on. This one's not so much about engines or powertrains. This one is about three wheelers. Oh um, yes. And actually, this is quite just a good opportunity to talk about the new Morgan three wheeler, which is actually it's not called the three wheeler, is it? Super three. You remind me what it's called. Super three. Yeah, it was revealed last week. Um, quite a different thing to the to the previous one. For instance, yeah. its engine is now inside the body. It's, it's under a thing called... They've, they've come up with this thing called a bonnet. 
<laughs> and they put and they put the engine under it. I mean, How many can you imagine? After I mean, when we're talking about technological innovation, <laughs> it's got a bonnet. Radical things happening at Morgan. Radical, yeah. Um, it's also, and this is quite. I mean, I loved that the previous one had a V twin, um, which is just so odd. Yeah. In a car-like thing. But the new yeah. one has a three-cylinder engine, so at least there's some symmetry to the wheel count. Um, oh, yes, I hadn't thought about that. A, yeah. Yeah. Which I is mean, a the Fiesta v, engine. I mean, the V-Twin, um, it's like that because that's what the original, you know, Morgan, as you know, been making three-wheelers since yeah. the uh, 20s. Well, obviously, they, they, they then stopped, but they always had um, massive V-Twins slung out the front. So, you know, so that's what they did again. But it wasn't. It wasn't a great solution in engineering terms because this huge two-liter engine, you know, which was heavy and st- stuck out the front of the car, um, it still only produced eighty-two horsepower. Um, <laughs> you know, it wasn't exactly efficient. Um, so, I mean, visually, I kind of think it looked amazing, um, but I suspect that the uh, that the new engine is a, is, is a rather better um, solution to uh, to whatever it is they want the car to do. Uh, but, but but we're actually here to talk about three wheels rather than two or three cylinders, aren't we? Um, yeah. And, and my understanding is that Morgan started making three wheelers because, for the most obvious of reasons, is that they they were they could make the car more affordable. Um, you know, they were super cheap um, runabouts. I think the very first ones. Someone will tell me I'm wrong. I think the very first ones were single seaters. I'm not even sure whether they even sold them, but they're prototype anyway. So whatever. But. Um, it was just it just required fewer bits, um, and it wasn't like there was enough power back then for them to be sort of traction limited or anything. So that didn't matter. Uh, and I wonder whether there were also any sort of rules about it had three wheels, therefore you could drive it when you're younger or something. I don't know. I don't know. But um, and now they came back just because it's kind of fun and it's a historical you know doff of the cap to what things were like before and it's you know they they, they came back for some nostalgic reasons there's no real justification for creating a, a three-wheel car these days it's not like you can say ha, yes but it's dynamically better for this that and the other reason it's not it's got three wheels um it's always going to be a compromise but you know if anyone can do it morgan can yeah and if any car is a car for fun, purely for fun, a recreation. It's a yeah. Morgan, isn't it? Yeah. And I totally understand the appeal of a, a three-wheeled Morgan as a recreation. It is a pure recreation, and that's what's great about it. Um, and and they, they are unique, and I use the word advisedly and literally. Nothing else drives like a Morgan three-wheeler. Um, that, that's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> if you're, you know, well, if you're, you know, if you're expecting it to be like an alternative to a catering, you're going you're to be very disappointed because they, ju- they just don't do that. They haven't got that dynamic bandwidth. Um, to me, they are ju- they're just perfect pub cars. They're for bimbling along, um, having a nice time, making a silly noise. Everybody looks at you. You feel good about that. Um, you don't drive it too fast. You don't drive it too far. Um, and this sounds patronising. It's not meant to. I think. It, I think there's a very genuine purpose to it there because I think an awful lot of people, quite rightly, love the idea of a car they can just do that in. Um, you know, you'll get more looks in a Morgan three wheeler than you will in a, I don't know, an eight twelve super fast, won't you? Um, mm. And no question. And it, and in many ways, it's a more distinctive driving experience too. Um, I wouldn't necessarily go rushing to scream around a track in one um they're not i mean i've done it um and i didn't particularly enjoy it but 
No, I think, you know, for, for, if, if you're not too demanding and you're, you're sort of a bit more into how it looks and how you think it makes you look um, than the sort of nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of how it handles on the limit and oversteer and understeer and all that nonsense, um, then, yeah, great. I think, I think it's fantastic, and I hope they do really, really well with it. The hilarious thing about driving one... So I've only driven a Morgan 3 wheeler once, and this was in the Shropshire Hills very narrow roads up in the Shropshire Hills. Yeah. And there uh, lots of gravel. And as you know, on a on one of those narrow gravel road narrow roads with lots of gravel on, the gravel sort of converges in the middle. Yeah. Isn't it? Where where most cars yes. yeah. have the great tire tracks and you and yeah. you get this build up of gravel in the middle. And of yeah. course in a Morgan three wheeler you've got one driven wheel at the back right in the middle. Yes. And so permanently that driven wheel is on the gravel. Yeah. And so it's just it's all over the place. Um, it's, it just, that's why I, I totally understand it as a recreation because it's, it's just so different to the car that you'll drive to and from work every day. You know, it's, it's just so bizarre. Um, if we're talking three wheelers, we need to briefly discuss the three wheeler. We need to have a talk about the Reliant Robin. Do we? <laughs> uh, can it be a well, short talk? It can be a very short talk. Have you driven one is what I want to know. No. No, no okay. I haven't. So no. it was from 1973 in production for 30 years, um, different generations. And I mean, there was a, a, a purpose to this. Um, this was this so about making on, a car. So it went out of production in 2003? Yeah. So how did I manage to spend, what, have 15 years of career and never drive one? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I assumed you would have done it. That's remarkable. I drove point. every other shitbox from that era. Um <laughs> Absolutely. I, mean, so, I don't know whether Autocar banned them from being on the premises. No, but I mean, possibly there was a there's a good reason for it. It's a, you know it's a simpler, lighter, more affordable vehicle. Yeah, I hesitate to call it a car really. Um, and also, it could be registered and taxed at motorcycle rates, so it's yes. easy to run. Yeah. And originally, well, certainly at times, you could drive one on a motorcycle license. Um, I don't know. I don't think that was always the case, but certainly at times. So. Yeah, I mean, there, there were some reasonable reasons for building the Robin or for owning one, but I mean, really, it became just... the it became the Rialto, didn't it? Is that right? Yeah, the later I mean, ones are just... called the Reliant Rialto. Yeah, mm. move on. Just hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, right. You've got you've got a whole list of these, so I'm going I'm going to pick out a couple. Um, pneumatic suspension, please. Again, don't ask me how it works. Um, yeah, you think he's Citroen's mostly? I think he's Citroen's. Yeah, I'm thinking you know the amazing self-leveling um, suspension that you got in you know in the one well, the DS and the CX and the XM and, and so on and so Ooh, forth. I know how they work. Oh my god! Do I? So you got you have a sphere, don't you? Yes. With oil and water with a membrane in between. If you could say that again, as if you were state- making a statement rather than asking a question, then that, that okay. means I wouldn't have to answer it. <laughs> so I think that's <laughs> I right. I display my utter lack of knowledge. I know they have spheres. Maybe it's water and air or something. But the point being, um, one side is compressible, the other side is not. So one side act- acts as the spring, the other as the damper. Good. Beautiful. Well, that's a, well excellent. Think. Well, okay, well... That's fantastic. And if you've ever been in one of these things, um, they do have the most extraordinary ride quality, don't they? I mean, I don't mm. know if you've been in. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm old enough, for, you know, 
Citroen XMs and, and that sort of thing. And I can remember uh, we had a Citroen XM, a 3 litre 24 valve, as a long term on auto car. Um, might have been the least reliable car auto car ever around. Not sure about that, but um, yeah. But when it was working, um, it rode beautifully. I mean, just astonishingly. I mean, limousine well, probably better than limousine well. I mean, you could go down a you know, bumpy road and the bump just wouldn't be it was it appeared to resurface the road um but the problems were um they were expensive to produce they were unbelievably complicated uh, and they were also extremely expensive to put right when they went wrong um i suspect they weren't terribly space efficient either um so they never and and also the other thing is exactly what you were saying about earlier um with you know petrol engines becoming smooth and you know and 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 therefore negating the need for for turbines you know similarly conventional suspension particularly with the development of air springs and particularly with the development of um computer controlled damping and that sort of thing they just you just didn't need it you didn't need all that complication you didn't need to you know patent and homologate and develop and engineer and test all those bits for a completely different kind of suspension which you couldn't put on you know on any other car um because the conventional way of doing it um with springs and dampers uh has just it's just become so good um so i think the technology kind of outlived itself but it was it was absolutely amazing air springs do it now don't they in a big Mm -hmm. limo Yes, brings to a lovely job, but it's it's a pity. I suppose what we're talking about is innovation that had potential, but which ultimately um, never really got anywhere, and so everyone just arrives at the same solutions. Um, I mean, I think about hot hatches. Actually, you know, twenty years ago, you had five cylinder hot hatches, rear drive ones, front drive ones, four wheel drive, turbo, supercharged, V six ones. Um, there was a huge amount of variety. It was a really rich sort of ecosystem. Um, and then years later, it's all front-wheel front drive, two-litre turbo, manual, you know, or yeah. you've got four-wheel drive with, a you know, those front-bias four-wheel drive systems, two-litre turbo, DSG boxes. Everything sort of converged on broadly the same solution. Because so everybody this, figures out ultimately what the in inverted commas yeah. best which usually means cost efficient way is doing and and that's a that's a, you know this is a sort of slightly general point but you know i th- i think people often wonder about you know when's this technology or that technology going to arrive um, and so often the case is that it's been around and it's existed forever and it's proven and it works and it's great the thing that is stopping it is getting it to market at a price the customer's prepared to pay. And that's the one thing that people so often forget. Just having a complete, a revolutionary technology, which ticks every box, answers all the questions, it's not enough. You've got to be able to manufacture it um, at a com- in a commercially viable way. And if you can't do that, you might as well have not invented it. I want to hear you talk now about amphibious cars. Oh, yeah. Um, and oh, no, no, okay, I have driven one of those. I drove in the water? Called- yeah, the, the water. water. Yeah, both. Um, Brilliant. I drove a thing called the Gibbs Aquada. Yeah. Um, I mean, so we probably all remember the, the Amphicar from the 60s, I think. Um, and, I mean, there is a fundamental problem with amphibious cars. I don't know much about boats and sailing, but I do know that um, 
the shape of a vehicle optimized for going acro- across the water is not the same as the shape of a vehicle optimized for going across the land. Um, and if you just make a car and you make it waterproof and you put a propeller on the back and you put it in the water, it's not going to be able to move because it doesn't have a hull. Um, and you know, the limiting factor of all boats is what they call their hull speed. There's a speed beyond which that hull can't get through the water. And so if you design, similarly, a boat um, that's got wheels on it, <laughs> you're, going to have a, you're going to have a ridiculous and, and totally space-inefficient road car. And so I think the Gibbs Aquara, I don't know what happened to the company or whether it still exists or whether you can still buy one or whatever. I think it was the, it was the best solution seen to date. Um, but it was still quite clunky. I mean, it looked quite like an MX-5. Um, and it, what, what was good about it, it, it had a proper hull. Um, and so it, it was really pretty good in the water. But it was extremely expensive. Um, it was pretty compromised on the road. Um, and, you know, I guess if it was changing people's lives, then that's great. But, you know, I mean, but how often have you been driving a car and thought to yourself, oh, God, I wish I could just, you know, nip across the channel or nip up the Thames or, you know. So I think I think demand is limited and I think the cost and the complexity, you know. So I think I think the Gibbs thing was quite good. But again, you know, it may be exactly what I was saying, an example of a technology which actually, you know, works pretty well on paper. But you can't bring it to market at a price, you know, which is acceptable to the people that you want to buy it. And so it doesn't work. Uh, yeah. You, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Who needs an amphibious car? Maybe there are, I don't know, there's a rescue service. Or there'll be some very specific use cases for that sort of vehicle. But most of us don't need to be able to drive into a canal or a, or a river do we? and <laughs> continue our journey that way. Um, as fun as it sounds. Um, okay, let's move on a little bit. Uh, another one from your list, Andrew, is chain drive. Yes, yes. Um, so Fraser Nash's, they're the, the only company I know that used to make chain drive cars. I mean, basically they were, you know, we think of bicycles driven by chains. Well, this was a car driven by chains. Um, and I'm not going to talk for long about this because I don't really know why they failed. I suspect they were quite noisy, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just a really, really cool thing to do. And I think, you know, once again, they probably, they were an answer to a question nobody asked, um, which is why they probably didn't succeed. Uh, and everybody else went um, in a different direction. But I would be interested, um, and I perhaps should have found this out before this podcast, in, in why they didn't take on. Um, because they did exist, um, but they never get, but they, they, they never got anywhere. Mm. There's a, a brewery, isn't there, Bista Motion, called Wrigley Monkey. Um, yes, and actually, they've sent me some of their beers. So thank you very much, Wrigley Monkey. Thanks, guys. It's lovely stuff. Um, but the, they posted on Instagram the other day explaining why they were called Wrigley Monkey. And it's to do with the chain drive on a Fraser Nash. There's a component that sits within, I don't know, the mechanism. And it vaguely looks like a monkey. And it just fidgets and wriggles. And so that p- component has become known as the Wrigley Monkey. And they decided to name their brewery after that piece. Um, Excellent. That's got to be worth pursuing a bit more. While we're on the subject, can I can I just chuck one in, which isn't on any list of yours yeah. or mine, because I've only just thought of it. But it is Go a on. good one, okay? And it's about transmissions. The pre-selector gearbox. 
Okay, so these were in the 30s. These were um, quite big news. Um, and the idea was, you know, back in the days when gearboxes were, um, you didn't have, maybe you didn't have synchromesh, they were, they were slow um, to change gear and they were quite easy to damage. Um, for racing, it, pe- what people decided to do was create this thing called the pre-selected gearbox. And so the, you were never in, so the gear selector was never in the gear that you, that, so let's say you were going, you were in, you know, you're going down the back straight um, at Le Mans or whatever, and you were in, say, you'd say you're in fourth gear, so say you were in fourth gear. Um, what you would do is you would select, as you were doing that, the gear you wanted to be in for the next corner. So let's say the next corner was second. So you'd be driving along, flat out, the car would be in top gear, but you'd have second on the selector. And so when you got to the corner, you just bang the clutch and it would instantly select the gear because it was pre-selected. Um, and it took, you know, you got much quicker gear changes out of it. Um, it was very difficult to damage the gearbox by missing a shift or, you know, damaging the cogs within it. And it was completely brilliant. Um, and so why didn't it work? Um, I've driven cars, I've raced cars with pre-selected gearboxes, and they do my head in. They completely do my head in. Because if you can imagine you're driving as fast as the car can go and you have to put your hand on the gear lever and select second gear while it's going as fast as you and, and in your head you just think this is just going to be horrible and I know you know it's not going to happen because you're merely pre-selecting it but in my small brain it's it's a problem um, the other problem with it I don't really know why they were this way but they were unbelievably heavy so the car that I raced um, which is an MG K3 the gearbox weighed more than the engine oh um, my god <laughs> And they're big, bulky things, and I suspect that's probably what did for them. Um, but there were, you know, there were lots of cars. The French were quite big on them. I mean, there was a Cotal did a gearbox which was on Telehays and Delages and that sort of thing. Um, and you know, I, th- I think that they were in the time really, really cool things to have. And I suspect that as gearboxes got easier and synchromesh came in, they just became not necessary anymore. But I just thought I'd chuck them in there because they popped into my head. Well, what about um, the Porsche Sportomatic gearbox? Yeah, again, um, we've seen these, haven't we? We've seen clutchless manuals. Um, and I think Sportomatic was, there was just a sensor in the gear lever. Um, and when it felt pressure, as in you were changing gear, it just sent an instruction which depressed the clutch. And so you just so so you basically just changed gear without a clutch because the 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 car would activate the clutch for you, and I think that's all there was to it. Um, so great, but you know you were still having to change gear, so it wasn't like a sort of proper automatic. Um, I think they were probably quite complex, maybe a bit. I don't know. I don't know why that didn't work, but I mean I can remember at the time it, it came out, we were just absolutely outraged that anybody <laughs> should try to. Um, take away the fun of timing your clutch through the everything else. We just thought this was just the end of the world. Uh, little did we know what was coming in terms of um, cars, you know, removing the pleasure and the experience of driving from the driver. We didn't know what was to come. But at the time, um, I can remember, in the, certainly in the Frankel family, we were horrified by the idea. <laughs> um, good. Well, they, and do you know what? There's talk, isn't there, of... Um I think a few companies are looking at how to mate an electric powertrain to a to a manual gearbox of some description. Um, 
And so it might well be that we'll do this podcast again in 20 years and we'll have a whole new list of stuff. Well, I mean, if, if, if you go, if you take your, you know, your whatever, your Fiat 500 to whoever it is and they stick a battery in and they turn it into an electric Fiat, you know, original Fiat 500, and it still have its manual gearbox. So you can still, you know, and if you, I mean, if you have any um, plug-in hybrid which will run on electricity alone, when it's running on electricity alone, it's still, it's still running through the gearbox. Um, so it's, you know, it's still, you know, it's, it's, it's easily, easily done. Um, but yeah, it'd be interesting, wouldn't it? When they do the electric catering, for instance, will it still have a manual gearbox? Mm. Don't know. You kind of think it needs to, doesn't it? Well, you'd think so, but who knows? Um, we have got others on our list, but I think we've run out of time. So we were going to we oh, could let's have do one more. About, okay, well, you, you, do you want to choose aluminium brakes, CVTs, run flat tires, or pop up headlights? Oh, blimey. Or something else. <sighs> no, well, God, I mean, that's enough of a choice anyway. So I, no, I'll do pop-up headlights another time. Aluminium brakes, CVTs, or run-flat tyres. Yeah. Um, let's do run-flats. Where have they gone? I'm Where sure you can still gone? get them. Do you know BMW basically just, you know, bet everything on run-flats, didn't they? Um, apart from M Sport, who said we're not touching the things. <laughs> yeah. uh, M just said no, we're not having them. Um and I don't know, it's just, you know, I mean, we used to hate them because um, they just turned the... Because they had such stiff sidewalls, didn't they? I mean, that was the idea, was that, you know, you, is that you build a car with a sufficiently strong strong sidewall that the, the structural integrity wouldn't be compromised if it was punctured. Um, but that just murdered the ride. Um, I don't know why they've... I don't even know if they have completely gone away. I suspect they have, because you just don't hear about them anymore, do you? Mm. Um, but they Not were... Like you used to. No, I mean they, but but they were probably I mean, they were heavy. They spoiled ride quality. They, I don't think you could repair a run flat. Um, and yeah, I mean, so I, I, and I think the other thing is, is that my understanding is that people have a puncture approximately once every hundred thousand miles. Yeah, which for most people is probably once a decade. Yeah. So are you really going to go to that expense and, you know, have the compromise to your ride quality and everything else for an event which during the course of your driving life is probably going to happen six or seven times? Um, you're probably not. And I understand why they came about because, you know, cars increasingly stopped carrying spare tyres um, and changing wheels at the side of the road and everything is a pretty unpleasant um, experience. But they never struck me as being a good idea. It's one of those things when you see them, you think, oh, that's superficially, that's, that, that's quite bold. So you go, you have a punch, you don't have to do anything, you just keep going, drive home. Um, and then you think about it a bit harder and you think about the compromises imposed. And yeah, no, I mean, I, I never liked them. I never drove a car and run flats, which was anything like as nice as it would, would have been without them. And yeah, no, I'm not sorry to see the back of them, if indeed they've gone. Okay, so I did say that was going to be the last one, but I've realised that I've got another one here, which is probably quite important. Um, and it's alternatives to the steering wheel. Oh, well, like tillers. But, well, yeah, the, but the, the truth is, nobody has yet come up with a better idea than a round thing that yeah. goes that's right in front of you, and yeah. you hold it, and you turn yeah. the car with it. There's, yeah. It's just the best solution, isn't it? I suppose most recently, Tesla has got its yoke, which is, well, it's, I don't know, it looks like something from a racing car, doesn't it? It's yeah. not a complete circle or even close. Yeah. But it is still a steering wheel. That you turn yeah. it and the car steers. Yeah, so that's yeah. exactly it's it, it's basically still the same. But there have been alternatives, um, 
At Mercury in 1965, uh, they tried wrist twist controls. That sounds so, deeply dodgy. <laughs> two two five-inch wrist-operated rings that were linked to turn <laughs> simultaneously. So essentially tiny steering wheels. I, I can't even begin to imagine how they work, but all it really did was improve visibility, which again, I mean, that's an awfully long way to go for a relatively minor... Terrible. Yeah. And there have been joysticks, dual joysticks, and also a single joystick. Mercedes showed off a single joystick um, concept car, the F200, in 1996. And Saab Prometheus as well in 1993. Um, but can you, can you imagine trying to drive a car with any enthusiasm using a joystick? It's all the, over the, the shop. But the very first cars didn't have steering wheels. They had tillers. Tillers, yeah. Um, and they literally just had a handle. Um, it was like you were, you know, captaining and captaining a boat, um, and you know, for a while that was just the way that it was. So, yes, I, you know, again, we get, we come back to answers to questions nobody asked, and I don't think anybody has yet said, "Oh God, this steering wheel thing—it's really useless." Mm. Um, yeah, we've got to be able mm. to think of something better than that. Yeah, it's not really a surprise, is it, that the steering wheel has um, sort of lasted. 100 and whatever years it's yes because it's it the works. best solution yeah <laughs> let's not mess with it um good okay well we will leave that one there then um there you go that's invent reinventing the car um the next episode as we mentioned right at the beginning of this one is episode 100 which is bananas it means we've been going for more or less two years um and actually for this for, the, for episode 100 we're handing it over to you the listener we want your questions um, we put out a post to that effect on Instagram over the weekend and tons of you have sent in your questions um, we'll never I get mean, through all of them hundreds yes yeah. we'll, mm. we'll never get through all of them but we'll, we'll do our best we'll pick out the best ones if you want to contribute your just you know if you want to contribute your question get onto Instagram you'll find the post leave a comment um, but just be creative be original um, those are the ones that we're going to pick aren't they yes what's your favourite car Probably not going to answer that one. No. Be original, be creative, and we'll, we'll answer your question. So, yeah, there we go. That's, that's the next episode. Um, but until then, please check out the Intercooler app, download it, start your free trial, um, and also rate and review the Intercooler podcast. And where, wherever you listen to podcasts, please subscribe or follow whatever, it, whatever the button says. Hit it. Um, that really helps us out. And we'll be back to talk to you again for episode 100 100. next week. Wow. Look forward to it. Cheers.